You're listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Here's your host, Ed Yonka, Director of Communications and Public Policy. In a time when too many states across the nation are taking a step backward, Illinois is taking a giant step forward for women's health. We proudly proclaim that in this state, we trust women. Welcome to this episode of Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. That voice you heard was Governor J.B. Pritzker of Illinois on the day that he signed into law the Reproductive Health Act, a major accomplishment for this legislative session. Today, we're going to talk about action in Springfield. In early June, the 2019 spring session of the Illinois General Assembly came to an end after months of proposals, hearings, debates, and votes. A number of observers have been particularly laudatory about the work done in Springfield this session. In fact, the Chicago Sun-Times editorial board even described the session by saying that, quote, the sun is shining bright. For the ACLU and all of you who value civil liberties, we saw movement this session on important issues— Access to reproductive health care, as discussed before, protections for immigrants, LGBTQ individuals, and much more. It was, to say the least, a very good year for our issues in Springfield, where, unlike Washington, D.C., we saw positive movement forward to protect the rights of individuals all across our state. Our guest for this episode is Kadeen Bennett, the Director of Advocacy and Intergovernmental Affairs for the ACLU of Illinois. Kadeen is a veteran advocate in Springfield and has been recognized for her work on a range of civil liberties issues. Kadeen, welcome to Talking Liberties. Thank you so much, Ed. So let's start with a little bit of basics, okay? What is the process in Springfield? How does the legislature work? How's it organized? And how does a bill become law? Well, um, I'm sorry I don't have schoolhouse rock music, but (laughs) hopefully folks can follow along. So basically for affirmative pieces of legislation um, and our bills, we decide what chamber it's going to start in. It could start in the Senate or the House, or it could actually start in both chambers if we're so inclined. So let's say we're starting in the House. Uh, a bill is introduced. We draft the bill. We send it to this place called the Legislative Reference Bureau, LRB. They put it into bill language. We have our sponsors pick it up. They file it. And then you go to this website called www.ilga.gov, ILGA. And you type in the number and then you'll see that legislation pop up. So once it's filed, it gets assigned to rules and a group of legislators meet to decide which committee it goes to. Uh, There are tons and tons of committees. Uh, And then once it's in committee, uh, there is a vote to get it out of committee. We um, usually call our bills when we know we have the votes to get that done. Uh, Once it's out of committee, it goes to the floor and then it has to be read for three times before it's voted on. Um, And that's an opportunity if we need to make amendments, we go back to committee and then it goes back to the floor again. It gets out of the House. We need 60 votes 
needs to get it out of the house. Um, 71 if it's something that requires a super a majority or a constitutional related issue. It goes to the second chamber, in this case, the Senate. The same process happens instead of rules. It goes to assignments. Uh, it goes to a committee. It's read three times. And then um, it goes to the governor's desk. The only time that changes is if in the Senate we have to make an amendment. Then it goes back to the House for a concurrence vote and then goes to the governor's desk and the governor can either sign the bill, do nothing, and the bill automatically becomes law, or they could do a veto of some kind. Wow. So I think one of the things is is that oftentimes for a variety of different reasons, I think sometimes people don't quite know or follow what's happening in Springfield with the same intensity that they do what's happening in Congress. Um and but but state legislatures and the in the legislature in Illinois really can uh, reinforce protections for for people, um, and and we've seen that here in Illinois. The the Supreme Court is getting ready to hear cases on discrimination against LGBTQ employees, um, and yet Illinois has a fully protective Human Rights Act, and and we've seen that in a number of different areas. I guess I the question generally is for people who care about civil liberties, why should they be paying more attention to what's happening in Springfield? Yeah. Before I answer that question, I want to pull back a little bit. So as you know, I've been at the ACLU for, I guess it's going to be 11 years now. Wow. And I started when I was 10, so I'm <laughs> just 21. Um, and one of the things when I was deciding to go from litigation to legislation, our legal director at the time talked about the importance of the legislative work, where as we get blocked from going to courts or things are difficult, the legislative arena is becoming more and more important as a tool to utilize. Um, And I think after Trump especially, but even before then, I think there's been more of a focus on what's happening at the state level, in part because for a while it's felt like Congress can't really do anything. There's just so much like partisanship. There is so much distrust of each other. And while we see a little bit of that in Springfield, now and more and more states are really becoming the place where folks are able to protect um, the civil liberties that we think are, are really important. So what happens in Springfield actually affects the lives of people in Illinois way more than what happens at the federal level. So some of the legislation that we've pushed for this session in particular, especially around reproductive rights, that was because we were worried about what was happening at the federal level. We wanted to make sure that Illinois was protected. And the best way to do that was to pass something in our state general assembly. And when we had legislators from Georgia come to talk about, you know, hey, Illinois, we really need you to do this because we can't do it in our state legislature. Um, it really, for me, emphasized the importance of state work. And I I do wish more people paid attention to right. it because you yeah. actually can make a difference. There are some uh, races that happened in, in um, the last elective cycle where somebody won, I think, by like three votes mm-hmm. or a hundred votes. So what your legislators are doing um, the more you pay attention, the better a result it can have from a civil liberties perspective. Yeah, and it does. It becomes such a backstop. And I, there's been all this focus, for example, on what's happening in the courts, what's happening in the Supreme Court, yeah. all of the judicial nominations that the Trump administration is pulling, pushing through the Senate to put in lifetime appointments. This work becomes such a critical backstop to what's happening at that level. And it's also a place where we can have affirmative protections before we even realize Realize that those protections are needed. So one example before my time was in, um, we have this Biometric Information Privacy Act, and that was um, 
you know, something that was drafted by a former colleague of ours. And he realized like privacy protection in an internet age, like information about your biometrics, like that your fingerprint, your iris scan, these are things that are super important to be protected and drafted a piece of legislation. I think the story I heard is that most people didn't understand what the bill did. And now that law, which is the first of its kind, the only law with that level of strength is something that Facebook has been spending millions of dollars trying to challenge both in the courts, but also trying to block in other states and also trying to erode here in Illinois. So it's a response to things we're seeing at the federal level, but it's also a way to establish a basic level of protection where most people may not know it's necessary. That is such a great example, I think, to the the importance of this work and the importance it can play because we're, what, 10 years after the Biometric Information Protection Act passed. Yeah. And people are, in some ways, are just now beginning to see its yeah. real impact when you look at facial recognition technology, uh, as you say, fingerprint scans in yeah. a variety of places and things like that. So so it really does underscore the critical nature of the work. And I think it, it's also a space where, so if you're living in a city like Chicago, there are some things at our city level protections that exist that are great, but other states don't have, other uh, cities and counties don't have access to that protection. Right. So I think our voting in jails bill is one example where we uh, require that um, uh, jails provide an opportunity for voting for people who are pre-trial. And while Cook County did it and there are six other counties that did it, the rest of the state didn't there are 102 have that. counties, yeah, so yeah. yeah. And so for some people, based on where they were arrested and where they live, they actually they have the opportunity to exercise a fundamental right or not. And so by then having a law that requires all counties to provide that protection um, offers people across the state an equal playing field in terms of accessing that important right. So I wanted to jump into 2019 bills, and you've 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 sort of forecast this talking about the voting bill. Yeah. I wonder if you'd talk a little bit because that isn't a bill we've talked about on this podcast. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that bill does and why that voting in in jails and 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 getting this information. Why that's so critical? Yeah. So um, as you know, for the ACLU, voting rights and access to voting is really really. Uh, crucial. Um, And so we decided actually two years ago that we wanted to do some work in this area legislatively. Um, And the thing I like about our organization is that we have a national organization, a bunch of affiliates, and it was something that most of the affiliates were working on in terms of a voting initiative. And um, so our original idea was to have... um, legislation that would require people to have information about their voting rights once they're released from prison and jail and a voting rights um, application upon release. Because a lot of people didn't really know that they have the right to vote after they leave jail or prison. Illinois is a state that doesn't take away your voting rights permanently upon conviction. You get it back when you're released from prison. Yeah. Yeah. And so we were talking to then Representative Juliana Stratton. Uh, She's now this some other role, I think L- lieutenant governor, governor or something some, like that. Some yeah. role like that, yes. And she made the comment that while she was getting petition signatures, she found that, you know, people were telling her, oh, I can't sign that petition. I've been arrested or I've gone to jail or I've, you know, I'm just returning home from prison. And so uh, she was very interested in the issue. And then she was like, well, I've also been reading about what's happening in Cook County, um, an organization called Chicago Votes. And um, a colleague who used to work at Shriver, they've been doing work around 
um, in-person voting in Cook County Jail. And so she decided that it'd be a good idea to marry those two issues together. And we thought that that was a great idea. And so what the bill says is that um, for counties over 3 million, so like Cook County, you have to have in-person voting. And it's something we know that they're already doing, but wanting to make sure no matter who's in charge, that will always be there. And for the rest of the county, understanding that different counties have different resources, that they would have to provide an opportunity to vote via a mail-in application of some sort. And there's some local control in terms of how exactly that happens. um, And we're working on implementation to make sure it's rolled out well. And then when people leave prisons or jails, IDOC, the Department of Corrections, they're going to include our one-pager about people's rights upon release and that voter registration application in their checklist of documents that people get. So when you leave jail, that would be one of the things you have access to or prison. Um, And then working with counties to also provide that information. One of the things that was really interesting when we were um, developing that one-page guide, we went to different parts of the state, including Danville Correctional Facility, to talk to people who would actually get the document to figure out what would be important to them. That must have been fascinating. It was. You know, two things that were really interesting. One, folks, so many people didn't know they have that right. Isn't that amazing? And I remember this one person, he was actually leaving Danville that Friday. So we went on a Wednesday and we had these these draft documents. And he was like, you know, can I take this with me? Because when I go home, I want to be able to tell my friends about it. And it made me just super excited to work for an organization like ours, where we have the ability to pass this kind of legislation, reach out to people who are impacted, and to know that they people feel like a sense of excitement to vote. And the next question we get is, well, I'm glad I can vote, but who am I going to vote for? These people are corrupt. So then we, <laughs> we have to have that conversation about exercising your right to vote, and maybe they should run for office. One. Right, right. Well, that, it, which is great. Um, we should say that we are actually releasing this episode on the day that the governor signs the voting bill. Yes, and we're very appreciative of that because this was a two-year process. Right. In part because our former governor, um, the bill got, so I explained the process of a bill becoming a law, I got to his desk and he decided to do an amendatory veto, which took away the portion of giving people information about their rights upon release. The very thing the guy in Danville was excited about. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I I feel confident in saying that the governor is going to sign the bill without an amendatory veto, um, and our lieutenant governor gets to see something that she worked on come to fruition. So that's pretty exciting. Is it, I I just have to ask, is it typical that things can take that long, that it's a two-year process, that it's a multi-year process? And it's something like, even like this, that, that you have to explain to people and help them understand? Um, I've learned not to predict the length of bills. <laughs> there are some bills that I thought would take, oh, this is just going to take one session and it took three or four years. And then there's some heavy lifts like the RHA, which happened in one session. So a lot of it depends. It depends on if it's an election year. It depends on um, how the Democrats and Republicans feel about the issue. Um, we've had some bills like our privacy-related bills where they get out and with bipartisan support, a hun- everybody votes for it. And then we have bills like even the Reproductive Health Act, which it just squeaks out. Um, So, yeah, it it could take multiple years. Sometimes we get it in one session. So the Reproductive Health Act, you've mentioned that. So we we actually did an episode of the podcast where we took a deeper dive on this. The bill is now passed and been signed into law by the governor. Yeah. I I wonder from your perspective— 
why that bill was so important to move on and to do in this session. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure when, um, I think Kelly Cassie Rapassi was here for that conversation. I think part of it was the moment we're living in now in terms of um, we have a president who's made clear that he does not support full access to reproductive health. We have a Congress where they're not, we're worried about what they can do to limit rights. And then we have a Supreme Court where if a case comes before them, um, there's a real jeopardy that Roe could fall. And even if it doesn't fall, then it could be eroded. And what that means is that we had a law in the books where if you looked at it, if you went to ILGA, like I mentioned before, and you went online to see like, oh, what's this abortion law we have? When you read it, you'd be like, holy crap, like what are we living under? Like this is is abortion criminal. (laughs) But thanks to the work of our litigation folks and our ED and a a lot of like legal time and, and energy spent, a lot of those things weren't in effect. But if Roe were to be eroded, then we may have to go back to court. So the time was now to be clear that we want Illinois to be a place where folks can access full reproductive health care and have that right established in our our state law. I mean, again, I go back to the the folks from Georgia. They did a video for our legislators. And one of the things like that just stuck with me is like that feeling of like, if only we could have done it, this would be so helpful because now we're in a place where we're not sure we're going to be able to have access. And for us to be able to um, to take advantage of this moment to protect our folks in Illinois is important. And so while you have these other states rolling back uh, protections to be able to advance it, to, yeah. to eliminate those laws really does become an important thing. Especially for people in those surrounding states who are coming to us right. for help and for support. For help, yeah. yeah. Um, so one thing I have to ask, uh, the, the, the Reproductive Health Act passed out of the Senate late on Friday night of the last day of the session. Mm-hmm. You were in the room. Some of us, I will say, we're back here streaming and and probably uh, uh, probably a little more anxious than we needed to be. Oh, well, you should have been anxious. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what was that like? I mean, you you do all this work on a bill. I'm just wondering at a, at some level, like, what is it like to be in the room then and to watch that happen and to to see something come to fruition? So, I think. Um because it was so hard to even get it out of committee in the House where that was not a roadblock we expected. Um, And there was so much on the line in terms of, you know, feeling like if we don't do it now, when can it happen? And I I remember, you know, it was probably around like, you know, 7, 30, 8 o'clock, because while we knew that the session was going to be extended by a day, I'm not sure that the Senate agreed to an ex- uh, extension, but if they had to, like, if it was 12 or 1 or 12 or 2, the number of votes we needed would have ramped up, up, and I'm yeah. not sure we would have had those votes. Right. And so around, like, maybe seven thirty eight, I started texting, you know, people um, beyond my sponsors, like, hey, uh, are we going to call this bill anytime soon? Like, just thinking about how much time would be spent debating it with the opposition, use that as an opportunity to stretch out the debate so then we're screwed. Um, you know, it was like a 30, like just getting nervous and anxious. And then it happened. And it was just this moment of holding your breath the whole time. You know, while we had like a debate um, prep done and we had questions, stuff for the legislative record, all of that was there. But, you know, there are questions you don't anticipate. So texting with the staffer to make sure they know the answers to the question. You know, if there were unexpected things, making sure there was somebody else who's, you know, another supportive uh, senator who could make a point that we needed to. And then like that moment where they're ready to 
you know, for the vote. And they, you know, you see the numbers start to go up and you know what it should be, but then you're like holding your breath until you see that it's crossed the line that you needed to. And then just like this feeling of just like relief and excitement. You know, you had like legislators from the House were listening at the Senate and people were just so excited. And it just felt like this really amazing moment where um, all of this hard work, I mean, you didn't sleep for very much (laughs) of this past session, all of this hard work that our team of folks at the ACLU and also our national organizations, our coalition partners, like it just crystallized in that moment. And this is one of those places that really underscores the point you were making before, and it it goes to what the Georgia legislators said and other things. We're seeing this rollback of these rights across the country. And and I'll just say, you know, for myself in that moment, to think that you could actually do something that was affirmative, progressive, and positive— it's more than a relief. It, there's there. It, it really feels important. It feels like it really matters for people. Yeah. And the thing I would say, and the thing that was a bit surprising about even the RHA is, and the need that we have to all of the people who are listening right now is, it's so important to take action. Yeah. It's so important to yeah. talk to your legislators. If there's something you care about, calling their office and saying, I care about this issue. I really want you to be on the right side. Or if you're at somebody who you're a representative, they're perfect on these issues. They're the sponsor of the the bill, telling them thank you makes a difference because um, there was so much backlash um, on this particular piece of uh, legislation. And then for other bills where people may not like voting in jails, where we're getting pushback of those people actually deserve to have that right to vote pre-trial. And for legislators to hear from constituents that this is important is pretty, pretty critical. So when you get those emails from us or on our social media, we're asking you to take action. It actually really, really matters for you to do that. Um, I want to talk about another bill, the data collection bill. Again, we did a deep dive on this in an episode with Representative Slaughter, who came on and talked about the importance of, of, of this piece of legislation. What can you tell us about passing that law? What, what, what sort of your takeaway from that process? One, I'm glad we will never have to work on that again because as you you know, know, we did a number of extensions because it was really hard for us to get it permanently. Uh, but you got more votes in the House to make it permanent than you'd ever had just to extend it before. Yeah, I mean, I think... In part, we spent a lot of time talking to legislators about it. That was one of those bills where we thought it could have been done in a session. We ended up having to do it in multiple sessions. And there was a lot of time spent with law enforcement. So, you know, we worked to neutralize some of the law enforcement opposition. So the state police and uh, the Illinois FOP, them not being opposed to it was super helpful. And I think the message of we already do this. We're not asking for anything more. We're looking at ways to make sure that the data is used in the most effective way possible. Right. Um, But that was one of those bills that at some point even more so than the RHA was a a sleepless night when (laughs) when that wasn't passed yet because if we didn't get it, then we may not have that law at all. So it was going to sunset permanently. So, and we weren't trying for an extension. So again, that was a place where... um, it was actually one of those bills where I remember talking to a legislator at the rail and they said, oh, this bill, I've been getting a lot of calls about it because we did an action alert right before. And for me, and I remember calling you and like this action alert for this yeah. particular issue, people are really like legislators are paying attention that this is something that people want. I, I have to say it's one of those things that because that bill was originally sponsored as folks who listened will remember by Barack Obama. Barack who? Barack Obama. Uh, is he a, a 
musician he, or he's, something? He's someone who's gone on to do other things. Mm. He's got he's got a really sweet gig now as former president. <laughs> but you know, the fact that we could invoke him yeah. really did energize people. Yeah. It was it was always amazing. I was just disappointed he didn't come down to testify at the committee hearing. Felt, I mean, he's busy and sure, rude. but yeah, I just felt yeah. like, you know what? Yeah. We're trying to keep your legacy alive. It sir. wasn't for lack of trying, I'll just say. <laughs> <laughs> if I could just say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the other bill I wanted to just mention from the session is there was a, a really important and, and probably underreported privacy measure that moved through this year um, that had to do with the Supreme Court case. I wonder if you can talk about that briefly. Yeah, and I mentioned before that there are sometimes that we do affirmative pieces of legislation that uh, predict something that will happen. And one of them was a law that we passed a few years ago that was uh, the Freedom from Location Tracking Law. Um, and basically, Catchy title. I know, I know. <laughs> it's really like rolls off your tongue. Um, so, and that was a law that would require law enforcement to have a warrant if they wanted it to get current or future location information. And before, like from your phone, from your phone, or any GPS. electronic device. Right. Okay. And Actually, when we first introduced the bill, it was a warrant for any kind of location information, no matter if it's current, future, or historical. And we had a lot of pushback from the state's attorneys around it saying, you know what, I think that's going too far. It may not be in compliance with the law. Like, I don't know if that protection exists. And so there are times where when we push legislation, we have to um, compromise. So we have an ideal, but we take what we can get for now because we're incrementalists and try to look for opportunities to expand it. And then the Carpenter Supreme Court decision came down, basically requiring a warrant for historical information um, if law enforcement wants to use it. And one of the first calls I got was from a fellow lobbyist from the state police. And he's like, hey, I'm reading this Carpenter decision. Did somebody from the ACLU write it? Because, <laughs> you know, it seems like we're going to have to amend our law. And um, and we said, no, we did not write it, but we're happy well, it's there. We'll and be happy we will to be amend amending the law. The law. Right. And so we ended up having no opposition because it was codifying Supreme Court. Court. Yeah. Uh, practice. And it was one of those places where it's fun talking to uh, Republicans around it. There are so few opportunities for us to be, um, to have bipartisan conversations, especially with things like reproductive rights and LGBTQ issues are unfortunately becoming more partisan, partisan than right. when I first started. But these are bipartisan issues. A hundred percent. So that was like a quote unquote easy bill for us to move through. But it was really important. And, but but I should say it, it really is critical to do the bill, even though the Supreme Court has issued the ruling, isn't it? Th- so that you you're having the discussion, you're sending the signal to law enforcement across the state of Illinois that this is now what should be codified. Yeah, I mean, it's like a different version of our approach to the RHA, right? So even though there's a federal protection or a Supreme Court decision, as much as we can, codifying these protections in our state law is really, really important. Um, The legislature has a a second session of the year, the so-called veto session that's coming up in the fall. What should our listeners know about that session? Um, it they should know that it's happening in one week in October and one week in November. When you get emails from us to take action, they should definitely take action. Um, and one of the things that we're definitely going to be working on is a repeal of our existing parental notice of abortion law. And I don't know if listeners can go to a previous episode to hear about that. Actually, they can look forward to the next episode of nice. the podcast where they will hear about that issue and about that bill. Awesome. So get ready to download that. That's going to be fun. So I'm not going to go into detail about what the law does, but essentially um, it's force parental involvement in for minors. It's a law that's um, been on the books for a long time, since the, a version of it since the 80s and right. then in the 90s. Um, it's the first issue I worked on when I was doing litigation work. Um, and uh, 
it was enjoined for a long period. And then at about six years ago, right. it was um, uh, unenjoined and went into law. And so that has meant that minors now have an additional hurdle when they're trying to get an abortion. Um, and for pregnant minors who can, you know, consent and make decisions about all other kinds of medical care, there's now a requirement that they have to notify an adult family member or go through this judicial bypass process. And if you want to know what a judicial bypass process is, you should listen to the next episode because we're going somebody to talk will about that. Yes. talk about it in detail. But, and including a judge who's actually heard these bypass uh, hearings in yeah. the past. So. And we know it doesn't make minors safer. And that was one of the pieces of um, legislation that we introduced this past session, but we didn't have time to come to. So um, it's really, imp- if you're listening to this before October, the second week of October, please reach out to your legislators, you. Senate and uh, your representatives to tell them that you want them to vote to repeal the Parental Notice of Abortion Act. And it, I, I imagine that a law like that is going to take a lot of conversations for you with a lot of different legislators, just answering questions, providing information, giving background and context for something like this. Exactly. And it's also about combating uh, wrong information. So the opposition to a lot of our reproductive rights bills, they don't always tell the truth. So that means that we have to counter these narratives that are... um, When you hear them, you're like, do people really believe that? And the answer is yes. So a lot of time is spent um, educating people about facts. Yeah, and it matters in that way. Anything else coming up in the veto session? Uh, I think for our initiatives, uh, there's a license to work bill. So um, that was a bill that my colleague Ben has been working on, essentially getting rid of... um, allowing people, even if they have um, unpaid tickets, to still be able to um, have their licenses, not have it taken away. Because if you're not able to afford your parking ticket, then uh, you not having a license to go to work makes it really difficult to pay for so that. So the, the, in this thing, what, what happens is people get their driver's license suspended for non-driving offenses, exactly, which then limits their capacity to work. Take their kids to school, do all of those things that we all depend upon. Yeah, and we've been in coalition uh, with the Transit Table Coalition around this issue for about, I guess, maybe two sessions now. Um, And so we are excited that this bill is going to hopefully move during veto session. Uh, And again, call your legislators to tell them you support the License to Work Act. That's fantastic. Yeah. Anything else you see coming in the legislature on the horizon, even if it's not immediately, like in the next few years? So in uh, 2020, folks could look out for a sex ed bill. So um, if you're a young person, you may or may not have sex ed. And uh, for a long time, our sex ed law was absence only. Um, Some years back, probably like eight years ago, we amended it. So it became absence plus information about contraception. And um, this was before civil unions, before marriage equality. If you were to go look at our sex ed law right now, there's a lot of um, outdated language that doesn't reflect uh, the, um, LGBTQIA uh, gotcha. folks. So we're going to do a reboot of that where we're going to make it more LGBTQIA inclusive and really focus on healthy relationships. So that's something that's coming up that's pretty excited. Um, we're also uh, looking at um, criminal justice reform issues. So uh, a bill that would um, de- uh, or change the felony theft threshold for retail theft. So right now, if you steal something that's worth $300, somebody can have a felony. We know that's, that a, that's a that's a phone these that, days. Yeah, a phone, yeah. a coat. Right, um, right. A, sometimes cases of formula. So right. uh, we want to not have that a felony. We want to make it a misdemeanor. And that's another example of, that's a policy that we have in Cook County right now. So if you're lucky enough to be in Cook County, you don't get a felony. But but Illinois is more than just Cook County. Exactly, exactly. So we want to make sure that that protection is, right. is there as well. 
Okay, well, thank you, Kadeen Bennett, for joining us today. And I really do hope you'll come back and talk about these issues in the future. I will. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. That's our episode for this time on Talking Liberties. You heard Kadeen. Before the second week of October, go to aclu-il.org slash legislation to find out more about the bills that we'll be urging for action in the fall veto session. We need your voice. It matters to your legislatures. So take action and share the information with your family, your friends, and your social networks. Talking Liberties is produced by Max Bever, executive producer, Chris Olson. This episode was mixed by Philip Von During. The content supervisor is Kimberly Kozeel. Our executive director is Colleen Collum. Subscribe to this podcast and rate us. Visit our website at aclu-il.org or contact us directly at talkingliberties, one word, at aclu-il.org. Until next time, this is Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois, and we'll see you soon.